I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 8, verses, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 20, and if you don't have a Bible, that's okay, you can find this passage uh, printed on the insert in your bulletin, and you can follow along. Uh, Grace Community Church, is, we're a new church, and I mentioned this a, a few weeks ago, but for all of our talk about starting Grace Community Church and getting going with this new vision for this church, and I know it can be said in a number of different ways, but we basically said that we want to build a church where people can come to know Jesus, where people can adore Jesus, and, and really find themselves equipped to serve Him in all of life. And so it's really not an accident that our first sermon series that we're doing at Grace Community Church um, is on these unique sayings of Jesus that are given to us in the Gospel of John, and they're called the I Am Statements. Um, Because, you see, if we exist to know and adore and follow Jesus, there there really is no better place for us to be together than at Jesus' feet, hearing Him tell us about Himself. And so, seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus uses these words, I Am, to tell us something important about Himself. And so, last week... We saw the first of these when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And today we're looking at the second one in John chapter 8 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So let's read together God's holy and inerrant word. John chapter 8 beginning in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now, before we talk about this passage, to seek his help and guidance. Let's pray. Father, we do come asking for your help. Asking that your word would indeed be a light to our path asking for your help because we don't come here this morning needing to hear the words of a man. We come here this morning needing to hear the voice of our Maker, to hear the voice of the One who formed us, to hear the voice of the only One who can redeem us. We need to hear your voice in power, the same power of your voice that when you opened your mouth, you called everything that is into existence. The same power of your voice that 
thundered from Mount Sinai to your people. Same power of your voice that when your son walked this earth. He spoke and it was by the power of his voice that the lame were made to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. By the power of his voice, even the dead came out of their tombs alive. That's the voice we need to hear, each and every one of us. Because as we walk in these doors this morning, we all come facing different things in life. Some come through these doors lonely in this world, wondering if anyone knows what they're going through, wondering if you are aware of what's going on in their lives. Others come in this morning anxious to be once again with your people, excited that you have chosen to draw close to them right now during their life. Still others come and wonder where where are you in the midst of trouble, in the midst of pain and trial, crying out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord, how long, till you turn your face towards me again. Some come this morning with a great many questions, wondering about the truth of your word, wondering even more personally if the good news we sang about this morning, the good news that we hear week in and week out, that Jesus came to die for sinners, wondering if that can really be true for us. Because we beginning to get a taste of the darkness of our hearts. We see the hypocrisy. Father, however we come this morning and in many different ways that we come, we pray as we spend time together in Your Word that You would help us to see that we really are all the same because we all are alike broken, fallen, corrupt, and the truth is, we're, we're far more broken than we could even really imagine. And so we all together stand in need of the same thing. We stand in need of the good news of the gospel. To know that though we're far more broken than we could imagine, because of Jesus and His person and His work, we're far more loved, far more accepted, far more secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. Set us free this morning, we pray, with that good news. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, all of us have this, this instinct in us, this, this real deep impulse and desire for freedom. And it's a universal desire that affects all people, all people groups. Um, it, this desire for freedom that we all have... It, it captures our imaginations, right? It burns deep in our guts. And it even shapes our lives and dictates our actions as we are pursuing freedom. I mean, if you were just to take a moment to think about the stories that we enjoy, the stories that live on even as, as classics. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a reason certain stories stand the test of time um, and live on as classics and they're constantly remade and retold from generation to generation, right? And, and I wonder if you think about those stories, if you begin to realize how prevalent 
the theme of freedom from captivity runs through those stories, right? I, I mean, the Count of Monte Cristo, right? Les Mis, Robin Hood. I don't know how many times that story's been retold. Way too many. Um, Kevin Costner. Um, that was when I was in junior high, I think. Um, the Lord of the Rings books, right? The, the trilogy. Uh, movies, even like A Beautiful Mind or Braveheart or even Star Wars. My son's not here this morning. He would have really appreciated that. But all, all those stories, hundreds more of examples that we could, we could give, they're all unique in different ways, but they all share this common theme of freedom from captivity. And sometimes the captivity in these stories, right, it's political, and other times it's psychological, and other times it's economical and, or, or physical, whatever it is. But in these stories that stand the test of time, there's always a people or a person who's living under some kind of tyranny, and they're waiting for a hero to show up and deliver them from that captivity, to fight in the place of the oppressed, right? To stand against tyranny, to break the shackles of slavery. In our passage, Jesus, he, he uses a very rich metaphor to describe himself when he says, I am the light of the world. And that by following him, you can have the light of life. It's a rich metaphor, but I think at its heart, what we hear in this, in this is this theme of freedom from captivity that, that really quickens our hearts, that stirs our imaginations, that makes us want to cheer for the hero, right? I don't know if you caught it, but this amazing news in verse 12. Jesus says that you can have the light of life, right? The story of freedom that you long for, that your heart instinctively chases after, that strikes the the deepest chords in you. The thing we all long for, Jesus is saying, it can be your story because I am the light of the world. So I have three points for you this morning. A shocking claim, a sobering revelation, and a transforming possession. Okay? Here are the points again. If you understand the shocking claim of Jesus, and if you can accept the sobering revelation that's in this passage, then you will find freedom and be transformed. So first, a shocking claim. Listen, if you're willing to do... A little work in this first point, I think the payoff will be huge. Because understanding the context of this story is really what makes it comes alive. See, we read in verse 20 that Jesus said these things at the temple. And then it says, yet no one seized him. And we read that and it doesn't just jump off the page and wow us and bowl us over and you know set us back on our heels shocked and amazed. But if you were a first century Jew and you heard this story told, you would say, Jesus said what? And he said it where? And no one seized him? You've got to be kidding me. Right, let's do the work here. In verse 12, we're told that Jesus spoke again to the people. And you actually have to go back to chapter 7, verse 37, to find the specific occasion for Jesus speaking. In verse 37, it says, On the last and greatest day... Of the feast. It's the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? It was this feast that was celebrated at the end of the, the fruit harvest, but it was a feast that commemorated God's provision for his people in the wilderness when they had, at a time when they had no harvest, right? And during this festival, the people they did some really symbolic things to commemorate 
this event. You know, so a part of the feast celebration involved building these huts to live in. Another part of the feast involved pouring out water uh, to remember that when they were in the wilderness, God made water come out of a rock for his people. But another thing, which is of special interest to us this morning, is that they lit an enormous candelabra in the city. And when I say enormous, I mean enormous, right? Each of the, the, it was four lamps, each of them holding like 65 liters of oil. And they would light these lamps. And we're told by the scholars that these lamps produced enough light that it nearly lit the entire city of Jerusalem. And so when they lit these lamps at night, it was a celebration and the orchestra was tuned up, the Levitical orchestra, and people were dancing in the streets celebrating. It was a huge deal. So what were these huge lamps symbolizing? This amazing spectacle of light reminded the people how God gave his people light in the wilderness. Right? You may or may not remember the story, but in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel, when they came out of their slavery... In Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And during that time, God appeared in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to the people to lead them through the wilderness. And they followed that light. I mean, wherever it went, they went. They followed that light. It was called the Shekinah glory, right? the glory of God himself. This was his imminent and immediate presence with his people in a pillar of fire. I mean, what an, you think, what an amazing thing to celebrate. I mean, you talk about, this is a major, major high point in the life of Israel. When God showed up amongst the people as a pillar of fire. But you, don't miss this little fact. It was symbolic, right? The Israelites had to light the candles, these lamps, these huge lamps, because the glory cloud of God, the pillar of fire, it wasn't with the people anymore. It wasn't there anymore. And that was one of the low, low points of Israel's history. 30 more seconds, it'll be worth it, I promise. This low, low point in Israel's history, it's described in Ezekiel chapter 10, where Ezekiel says, the glory of the Lord departed. And he tells us in that story about how the glory cloud, it, it lifted up from the temple and it went out the east gate. It left. It wasn't there anymore. God's immediate, special, imminent presence with his people, it was gone. It left the temple. So guess where they lit these humongous lamps? In the temple, but more precisely, the lamps were in the court of women. Which if you don't know, in the court of the women at the temple was the place where offerings were put. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because we read this in verse 20. Jesus spoke these things while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. And I'm telling you, there could not have been a more dramatic setup for Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. Right? It was the end of the feast, and the lamps either had just been extinguished or they were getting ready to extinguish these lamps, right? Yay, what a wonderful, you know, privileged history we have. And then all of a sudden... It's time to snuff out the light and be reminded that the glory of the Lord has departed. And this is where Jesus, right, he taps on his his mic, you know, he's like, I am the light of the world. Right there. He says, I am the glory, I am God standing in front of you, the Shekinah glory, the glory of God has returned and the glory of God is me. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. I am the light of the world. He claimed to be what? He did this where? And no one seized him? It's unbelievable. This is a game changer, okay? You know that part in the murder mysteries, the, the big reveal, you know, where all this information, it comes together in a moment and you find out all at once who done it and how they did it, right? And it turns the whole story upside down and everybody goes, ah, oh, you know, whoa, I never saw that coming. You know, that changes everything. No way. That's what's going on here. It changes everything. Jesus stands in that place and he says, I am the immediate, imminent presence of God. I am the Shekinah glory. Can you get your mind around this? This is shocking. The pillar of fire became a person. The metaphysical became physical. The ideal became real. The immortal became mortal, right? The omnipotent God became flesh that you could touch. The holy holy, holy God that we sang about earlier became someone you could hug. It's unbelievable. It's shocking. Now, hold on to that thought for a second, because secondly, we have to see, we have to face a sobering revelation in this passage. You know what a backhanded compliment is, right? Somebody says to you, you know, something like, you really did a good job today. I almost didn't tell you because I just didn't want you to get a big head about it. Right. You know, so you get the good job. Okay, that feels good. Um, But what is implied is that you are of such low character um, that you couldn't even possibly handle a compliment without becoming unbearably arrogant. And so it's like, okay, thank you. Um, It's not exactly the same as that in this passage, but there is something implied in verse 12. Reading along, you do sort of a a double take, kind of like, what? Hey, hey, wait a minute. Because Jesus says, whoever follows me, We'll never walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. And you go, wait a minute. Jesus is saying that without him, I'm completely in the dark. And that's it. Jesus is saying, without me, you are in nothing but darkness. And that's the sobering revelation. And I'm asking you in this point, if you're willing to accept it, You see, I'm calling it a sobering revelation because you know what it means to become sober, right? It means I'm no longer trying to escape reality and I'm willing to face it. It it, it means I'm no longer spinning the truth but accepting it. No longer repressing reality but embracing it. Jesus is saying face reality. Accept this hard truth that for you to try and find life outside of me is to be stumbling in a prison of darkness. And look, there are lots of ways... That's the little ways we try and do this. But the, all those little ways really boil down to two basic categories for how we try and find life outside of Jesus. See, on the one hand, you, you can do this through irreligion. I mean, you can boldly flee and turn, right? Just outright rebellion, boldly declaring your independence to be your own master. I'm the captain of my own destiny. No one, certainly no God is going to tell me what to do and how to live and how to find life. So I'll find life, right, in the pursuit of pleasure, sexuality, or at the bottom of a bottle. Or maybe I'll find life in uh, being fulfilled in my career, 
right? Or, 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 or I'll find life in my achievements and my resume. I'll get an identity for myself by having, being able to have power and being able to wield it over others. And I'm telling you, it's like chasing shafts of light that are really just a mirage leading you deeper and deeper into the darkness. Because you see, you build your life on the pursuit of pleasure. What happens? It just takes more and more and more to get that high again. And it's a slavery. Because you build your life on your career, trying to get your identity out of your career, and you become what? We call them workaholics. You become a slave to it. You build your life on your resume, the approval of others. I mean, you become a slave to everyone's opinion of you. And you're not free at all. But there is another way that you can try to find life outside of Jesus. And this is where it gets a little tricky. Because you can also try to find life outside of Jesus in religion. And it is also a prison of darkness. I mean, right in the middle of a good Southern, Bible-believing, Orthodox church, you can be trying to find life outside of Jesus. You can try to find life by measuring your moral performance, or you can try to find life by serving, when actually what you're doing is using other, people's to make, other people to make yourself feel better about yourself. You can try to find life through your theological knowledge. I mean, right in the middle of your argument about the sovereignty of God versus free will, you'll be avoiding Jesus. I, I mean, this is a kind of slavery, right? But it just... Maybe it's a more polished kind of slavery for us, if that's even possible. Because you try to find your life by measuring your moral performance, how well your life stacks up to to others, how, how well it stacks up to your own code of ethics, or whatever it is. Do you realize how deeply insecure you become? Always wondering if you've ever, if you've done enough, or maybe this time you've blown it too big. You try to find your life for, uh, by serving, right? And you become this a codependent slave, right? Just always needing to be needed. Slavery. Look, the the people Jesus is talking to, the Pharisees, they are further right than the rightest person in this room. Right? They are further right than you theologically, politically, morally. And to these guys, and this I think is really what verses 14 through 18, right in the middle of our passage are about. Jesus is basically saying, you... Religious people, you're in a prison of darkness, unable to see, right? You don't know where I came from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. You can just see what is right in front of you, but you don't see that the Son of God is standing in front of you, claiming to be the light of the world. If you knew me, you would know my Father. But because you can't see me, you can't see Him. I mean, they're stuck in this prison of darkness held captive. And I'm asking you if you're able to accept this reality that all of your attempts, every single one of them, to find life outside of Jesus is really, really taking you deeper and deeper into a prison of darkness. On one particular afternoon and evening in uh, February of 1998, I remember it very well, um, I'll tell you where I was because I met somebody from Prattville, Alabama this morning. But I was in Prattville, Alabama, and this guy took me... um, I'm going to have to leave out a ton of details. It's really a great story, but um, just for the sake of time. This guy took me hunting in Prattville, squirrel hunting. Took me to this place I had never been before and I will never go to again, right? And we got out of the, the truck and we're hunting together for a little while. And then we decided to split up and we went our separate ways. 
And we said, well, we'll meet back at the truck at such and such time. And I got lost. And it started getting darker and darker and darker. And I promise you, this is the most scared I've ever been in my entire life. It was a cloudy night. There's no moon. There's no stars. And when it got dark, it got completely dark. And it freaked me out. <laughs> Everything that you are not supposed to do in that situation, I did it. I mean, this is the, there was no light. I didn't have a glow-in-the-dark watch. This is before cell phone. Everybody had a cell phone. I had no light. Could, didn't have a flashlight app back in these days, right? It was completely dark. And I panicked, and I could not see the hand in front of my face, and I was, I was trying to get out, but I was running into trees and getting stuck with thorns. At one point, I fell off of a bank into a creek, and it's February, and it's freezing, and I literally thought, I mean, this is five hours in the darkness of some national forest somewhere, and I, I'm thinking, this is how my life ends, right here, hypothetically. It may be funny. It wasn't funny at the time, I'm telling you. It was scary. I mean, I could feel the darkness. That kind of dark, it was suffocating. It was choking the life out of me. It was pressing in on me, that kind of darkness. And every step I took was a step, or, a step deeper in, a step further and further into disorientation and lostness. Do, do you know how alcoholics and Drug addicts and sex addicts and workaholics and codependent addicts and self-righteous legalists. Do you know how these people get sober? They hit a wall, right? I mean, you've heard this. you got to hit rock bottom, right? Life, what that means is life isn't working anymore, right? The shafts of life, they were, the shafts of light, they were really just mirages leading me deeper and deeper into darkness, more disorienting, holding out the promise of life, but vanishing as soon as it appears, right? What used to promise life and identity for me has become a prison. I mean, that's why every 12-step program of recovery starts with this step. We admitted that we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable, and so I'm asking you, if you have faced that reality, if you have stopped spinning the truth and really accepted it, because you will never be able to see the light of the world until you first recognize your own darkness. Now finally, I want us to look at a transforming possession. Now, obviously and thankfully, I didn't die in those woods in Prattville, Alabama. Because here's what happened. I was ready and I was willing to give up. My life was over. I knew hypothermia was going to set in soon, and that was it. Um, but what saved my life was a light that pierced the darkness. Someone in God's good and wonderful providence had installed one of those security lights on the back of their house that backed up to this property. And some animal or something tripped that light. And I saw that light, and it, it was probably nothing... I was hundreds of yards away from it. Probably a 65-watt bulb or something like that. But it blinded me. It was so bright in that darkness. And all I did was set my... And I hit a lot of trees getting to that light. But I put my eyes on that light, and I did not let go of that light. And I kept walking. Eventually, I got to that house where the light had come on. Eventually, I got to the highway and then had to hitchhike a ride and camouflage in a sh with a shotgun, which was... Another interesting story, but um, it was, that was scary. Um, 
Now, I'm talking to two, kind, two groups of people, or two kinds of people this morning. And I'm saying to you, to, tho- to those of you for whom you can say, life is not working anymore, and you feel the darkness pressing in, of all the people this morning, you should be the most encouraged. Because the light always shines brightest in the darkness. And you may not realize it at this moment. You don't feel it at this moment. But you are so very, very close to Jesus. Because all you have to do is give up and look to the light. The second group of people are those who don't feel the darkness pressing in. And I'm asking you just to do this, to do yourself a favor and think your life through, to trace the steps of your life and ask, do you perhaps fit in that category of trying to find life outside of Jesus in religion? Because the very best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin and never know your desperate need of him. Now look, here's why I'm calling this last point a transforming possession. It's because Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and if you come out of the darkness and you follow me, you will have the light of life. It's really basic earth science stuff here. But we perceive right, the color in objects, not because color is inherent in particular objects or substances, blue, green, pink, orange, whatever. Um, they appear to be that way, Right? Because those objects reflect those colors. The colors are actually in the prism of light, right? Parts of light that get reflected back and bounce off your retina and all that kind of cool stuff. Here's the deal. Jesus didn't come claiming to be a reflection of light. He came and he said, I am the light of the world. I'm not a reflection of the glory of God. I am the glory of God. He is saying that when you come to him and follow him, he dispels the darkness. He releases you from the stumbling prison of darkness and he sets you free. He reveals his father to you. Right? He opens your eyes to the beauty of his redeeming love. He opens your eyes to the deceitful false promises of life outside of him. And Jesus doesn't say that if you come and follow him, you'll get close to the light of life. Jesus says, you will have it, you will possess it. Well, how can you know if you possess the light? You begin to change. I could go through a whole other thing and say this real briefly because of time. It's basic earth science stuff again, right? Without the sun shining on this earth, everything withers up and dies and blows away. Light is what causes you to grow and to be changed and to flourish. You know, a couple of years ago, I read this story about a lady, and her name was Anna Mae Pinnica, if I'm saying it right. But Miss Pinnica, she was blind. She was born blind from birth. And so, born blind from birth, yeah. Um, and she was, she was 62 years old when this, uh, this story was originally written about her. And she had never seen the faces of her friends, never seen the face of her husband, who she met in a Braille class. Right, She never saw the green of spring. She never saw leaves change their color in the fall. In October of 1981, this guy named Dr. Thomas Pettit, um, this certain eye institute that I can't pronounce, uh, performed surgery on her eyes. And he removed these congenital cataracts that had been the cause of her blindness. And she saw for the very first time. 
And when she finally opened her eyes to see, what she wrote was that she found everything to be bigger and brighter than she ever imagined in this world. I mean, she saw her husband, she saw her friends for the very first time. This one author wrote that since the surgery, she has hardly been able to wake up in the morning, splash her eyes with water, put on her glasses, and enjoy the changing morning light. I mean, she's so excited, it's hard to sleep because she can't wake up, wait to wake up in the morning and see the light again. I mean, finally having the light, it changed her, right? Not only was a whole new world opened up to her, bigger and brighter than she imagined, but it changed her life. Couldn't wait to wake up in the morning because of the joy of experiencing the changing light. Do you want that kind of life-changing joy and freedom? To have your eyes opened to the beauty of Jesus' redeeming love? I mean, do you want not only to see the story or read the story, or hear the story, but actually be a part of the story that every other story is simply trying to copy. Then come to Jesus, right? He came claiming to be the light of the world, but do you know how he gave the light of life to you and set you free from the prison of darkness? He was the hero, right, who came to fight in the place of his people. The light of the world came in flesh, that you could hug, that you could touch. But that meant that he also came vulnerable, hateable, hurtable, killable, right? You read through the gospel accounts when Jesus was crucified, darkness fell in the middle of the day, fell on him. And he took the deep darkness in your place so that in him you could have the light of life. And once you understand that you're far worse, far more in the dark than you could have ever imagined, but because of Jesus you're more loved, more in the light than you could have ever dreamed, once that settles into your heart, you're going to find yourself changed from the inside out. Come to Jesus and have the light of life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would remove the scales from our eyes, that you would begin to show us reality, that we might accept this sobering truth about ourselves, that trying to find life outside of you whether that be in irreligion or religion, is to be in a prison of darkness, stumbling deeper and deeper in, more and more disorienting. So we pray that you would reveal to us this morning the light of the world, that we would look away from ourselves and to the Lord Jesus Christ, And that in so doing, we would have the light of life. And the scales would fall off. We would find joy and peace and acceptance. The scales would fall off and we would look and see a bigger and brighter world. A world that you are actively redeeming through this wonderful good news. 
that Jesus is the light of the world, that darkness fell on him so that we could have the light of life. Pray that we would, you would allow us by your Spirit to take this into our hearts, that we would be changed from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.